But I see this a lot, like all in the infertility space about how following a very strict anti-inflammatory, low sugar, low carb, like just, just a very strict diet can improve egg quality. And I'm curious, like, is there more to the picture? Like, is it all about diet or is it more holistic? Yeah, I love that question. And yes, it was pretty funny. <laughs> I was like, wait, what is an egg quality diet? Like you said, it's totally holistic, right? I talk about the foundations for health all of the time. Sleep being like the number one, like the end all be all. I feel like many people are sleep deprived. And so like sleeps to me is gonna be an anti-inflammatory diet all day, every day. Welcome to the Period Recovery and Fertility Podcast. Here we discuss the challenging, rewarding, and life-changing process of recovering your period and finding freedom with food and exercise. Whether you're hoping to regain your cycle to get your health back on track, or you're ready to become a mama, this podcast is for you. While the recovery process isn't always rainbows and butterflies, it's my hope to bring you both information and inspiration during your own recovery journey. I'm your host, registered dietitian and fellow HA woman, Lindsay Lawson. So we have Dr. Samantha Bergulio, who's a naturopathic doctor and owner of Walk the Natural Path Hormone and Health Fertility Care. She began her practice because of her passion for helping women achieve their wellness and fertility goals. And as an ND, she is licensed to treat and teach patients from a mindset of natural healing that treats root cause of symptoms. Welcome, Dr. B. Hi, thank you so much for having me here. I'm so excited. And yes, on our live, we were just so chatty. So I couldn't wait to chat again. <laughs> yes, I was like, obviously, we need more time to talk about all the things. And funny enough, like when we originally scheduled the live, we had to reschedule it. And then when we scheduled this podcast, I had a sick kid, we had to reschedule. So we're finally doing it. And I'm so excited to talk about all the things. So getting into everything, why don't you tell us a little bit more about your background, like obviously there's so many things you can do as a doctor of naturopathic medicine. Why fertility? Like, why did you get into this space? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I'm going to try to give you the shorter answer. <laughs> I'm going to do my best, but kind of starting out, I actually wanted to be a pediatrician. And then, you know, they say you make plans and like God laughs or whatever. And I literally had people laughing because I just, I liked pediatrics. I loved it, but it was always like, I came up with a new, next to a new obstacle. Like it was really hard to shadow or, you know, the end of like my, my biggest learning years, like COVID hit. And there was like all these things that kept happening. And I finally was like, I need to go in a different direction. And I love women's health. I was already taking a bunch of extra courses in women's health specifically in school. So I was like, well, I really like this. Let's just keep going with it. And then I actually met my mentor and her name is Dr. Jacqueline Chassie. She got married. So I think it's changed and different, but she actually is a naturopath that specialized in fertility. And I took about 10 credit hours with her specific on fertility. And was like, wait a minute, I'm in love with this. Once I started learning more, I actually learned more about actually how my grandmother struggled to get pregnant for 10 years. And then my mother had her own fertility journey. And it was so interesting that I felt so called to it when I've had a lot of women in the past also kind of struggle with the fertility journey. And then I actually took her mentorship, Dr. Jacqueline's mentorship. And that was a year long program that I did after school to be able to like say I specialize in fertility, right? Like I just, I went in, I did grand rounds. I worked with different patients. I took many, many extra credit hours specific to fertility and just like fell in love with it and 
felt good at it, which I think is something as a physician, you should feel, you should feel good at like what your specialty is. And so I was like, let's do this. That is amazing. And I think that while like experience is key, education is key. I think that there's just this like whole different like part of passion for your profession when it has more of a personal story. Like you mentioned your mom and your grandmother. And I think that that's really, really, really wonderful. And it sounds like you've seen so many cases of infertility. Um, And one of the things that like, I hear you kind of pride yourself on, which I think is so cool is whenever you see couples for unexplained infertility. And I think something you said in like one of your Instagram reels, which I was like, well, that's freaking amazing is you were like, I sit down with people and we have like this hour long conversation and typically like a couple minutes in or asking a certain amount of questions, like people come in with unexplained infertility. And I'm like, I think I know why you can't get pregnant. Tell me more about that. Like, how can you have so much insight? What kind of questions are you asking? What are you looking for? Well, kind of like you read earlier in the bio, it's finding like the root cause and treating it and, you know, treating the whole person's everything. So, you know, a lot of times patients are talking to me and they're telling me like they get migraines like every time in their cycle. And I'm like, well, boom, there's like something right there that like needs to be fixed um, or needs to be altered. And so when I it's just, I think it's a matter of just listening and hearing the patients talk about, you know, what they're going through. I rarely have patients that come in or that are unexplained and like, everything's good. They feel great. They have energy when they wake up, like they eat perfectly. Like there's usually something that we can work on. And then a lot of the times when I'm looking at values, like lab values, I look at optimal versus normal. And a lot of people have normal values or looked at like normal ranges. And so then they show me their labs and I'm like instantly like, well, there's so many things that we can, you know, work on to improve. So there's a lot of things that actually can go on based off just symptoms plus looking at optimal labs and then just talking about, you know, other symptoms such as, you know, skin health, gastrointestinal health, endocrine health, all of that. Yeah. And I think that's something we can all relate to because how many times, like I'm thinking about myself and I know listeners, like how many times do we go to our OB request hormones and are probably first met with a little resistance? Like, well, why do you need that? You know, like who cares? I'm paying for it. Like order yeah. the test. Um, but then, you know, we get these tests done. We're so excited because we're finally going to get some insights into why our cycles are irregular or why we may not feel our best. And then we just get a phone call from the nurse three days later telling us our labs are normal. And it's like, well, wait a second. Like if I'm not getting my period at all, that's not normal. So I, I just like the idea of taking a deeper look because I do think that like, obviously labs are really powerful, but when we're looking at an incredibly broad range and it's like, well, you're not in menopause and you're not pregnant, like, but what about like that big range in between? So talk to us a little bit more about like optimal range for like, let's just start with estrogen, because I think that that's one where I know personally, like in the throes of period loss with hypopolemic amenorrhea, I do remember one time having an estrogen reading of five and I was told that that was normal. But like, if you looked at the breakdown, it was like, well, that's normal for somebody who is, is perimenopausal. I'm like, well, I'm 27. So this doesn't make sense. So talk to us more about like the optimal range for estrogen. Of course, it's going to depend upon where somebody's in, in their cycle, but like maybe talking more specifically about like an HA patient, like where do you see people come in and where are you trying to get them when it comes to optimal ranges on estrogen? Yeah. So it's one like 
stress and like when you're talking about HA, right? Like it's so interesting because I don't see a lot of people with lower or higher. It can be just like either one because like, you know, your hormones being thrown off, it can, your body can respond in whatever way it decides to. Um, but I do see like estrogen and progesterone being off. Um, I normally see in HA, like all hormones lower, they right. tend to be. Um, when we're talking about like optimal, sorry, like bringing myself back to the optimal ranges. Um, estrogen specifically, I like to see on day three, I just really like to pull estrogen, LH um, and FSH on day three of your cycle. For those who don't know, that's your third day of bleeding. And I really like to see it between like 30 and 50. Okay. I think that's a really good range to be in. Um, it depends if like someone's over, say they're at like 60, but their progesterone's at like 17, 18 or 20 or something. I'll be like, hmm, like that's an okay ratio, right? Um, that's going to be different than if your estrogen was at like 55, but your progesterone was at like six, because mm-hmm. then that's out. So it's, kind of confusing, but I tell people I look at optimal ranges, but there really is so much more that goes into it. Cause I also look at like those ratios. Cause that's going to be really important because you could be at the high side of normal for estrogen, but the low side of normal for progesterone or optimal, same thing. Mm-hmm. And that could still be an issue. Yeah. Uh, so we really have to look at that and then also consider the symptoms on top of looking at the labs. Yeah. So that might be a little confusing. Yeah. Are you typically doing draws multiple times during a cycle? Because you mentioned about progesterone being a certain number and would it progesterone only be higher in a luteal phase? Yes. Yeah. So I'm glad you clarified that. So I only really try to draw progesterone on, I say day 21, but everyone's different, right? So seven days after predicted ovulation, that's where I really like to pull progesterone because it's only going to go up if you've ovulated. So it's also nice because it confirms ovulation for us. And then um, we can also see if it's going to be high enough for implantation to occur and so on. Yeah. And I love, I love like the serial draws too, because a lot of times when I'm looking at labs with clients, I'll be like, well, this is cool. Like this is a starting place, but this is our baseline and hormones can fluctuate up and down throughout your cycle. So I love like the more thorough picture of drawing multiple labs. Why do you feel like this isn't typically done in the conventional medicine setting? Like when I just go to my OB? Yeah. I like don't want to say lazy, but <laughs> I feel like bad for saying that because there's some really like great OBs out there and conventional medicine like has its hundred percent its place. And like, they do things that I can't do, but at the end of the day, I mean, one, I have to put two separate lab orders in. So it are, it does create more work for me. Um, Sometimes if I put them in together, the lab will draw them at the same time. And I'm like, no, even though I write like all these notes in there not to do it at the same time, but it still happens. Um, So then you have to go in again, like later on in someone's cycle and then put them in. So it like takes more work on the back end. Like I know that's almost a silly reason, but like it does. Yeah. Um, And then also, I just, I don't think necessarily every practitioner knows how to read them that way or why it's important. And so you don't know the why or the how, then you're not going to do it because when you see the results, you're not going to even know what to do with them. So yeah. I've definitely heard a lot of REs on other podcasts kind of talk about, well, the reason why we don't do it is because it's not going to change how we're going to treat. And like, well, I guess I get that, right? Because if your MO at the end of the day is, well, all we're going to do is IVF and everything's going to be a stimulated cycle anyways, then yeah, it probably isn't going to, you know, change how you treat. But on that topic of IVF, you know, we're both pretty passionate about natural fertility. 
IVF always having its place, IUI, all these other more invasive treatments absolutely having a place, but we we both feel that this shouldn't be the first line of defense. And so tell me a little bit more like in, in your practice, like what do you, in your opinion, like what would be the downsides of someone coming in and they have HA or they have unexplained infertility and the message that they're given is, well, let's just start IVF. Like that's probably going to be the fastest way to pregnancy which we both know isn't always the case. What are the downsides to thinking about things that way? Yeah. So when you first, when, like you, like you said, when you go in and like, it's like here, this is your option. It's IVF. In my opinion, the root cause hasn't been addressed at all. Right. So if you're not getting pregnant, there's a reason behind it. Right. Um, if that reason is the uterine lining isn't like supple enough to accept implantation, or you're not, you know, getting high enough levels of progesterone to maintain a pregnancy, or your egg quality is not the best, or whatever the reason is, all those reasons that I just named are something that we can work on to get better, to either get pregnant naturally or to help improve the chances of IVF. But if you just go straight to IVF, nothing's been addressed. And if nothing's been addressed, like the chances of IVF working just are even smaller than before. So a lot of times I encourage people, I'm like, let's treat what's going on now. Even if we want to go to IVF, that's totally fine. But like, let's increase those chances by, you know, increasing that egg quality, increasing your progesterone levels naturally, you know, having a regular cycle, whatever it is. Now, people who jump to IVF because they have like a fallopian tube blockage, right? That might be a little bit different case scenario. Um, I actually work with people with tubal blockages and I work hand in hand like a visceral manipulation therapist and she goes in and like can help a lot of that. But, you know, there are cases that it's just not going to happen and it might not work. And so that's that's where I kind of understand jumping to IVF, right? Um, Because that's like a physical blockage that is getting in the way. And IVF is actually therefore kind of treating that root cause if you want to like kind of get into the nitty gritty, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. But in most cases, going to IVF isn't really dealing with someone's infertility issues. And the downside you're saying is lower chance of success with IVF because the reason why we're doing it isn't actually being addressed. We're just like, hey, like here's some medicines. Let's try to stimulate what should be happening in nature. And, yes. you know, I feel like IVF is relatively new. Like we talk about like some of like the oldest IVF kiddos are like in their maybe fifties now. So like that's, you know, in the grand scheme of life, like that's still pretty new. Do you feel like there's information that we don't know about IVF yet? Or do you feel like, you know, I I know that there is some fear from some schools of thought of like, well, what happens with all of the, you know, we're injecting higher levels of hormones than the body makes naturally. Do you see that as being something that could potentially come up in the future? Or do you feel like we would have discovered something by now? I mean, that's a great question. (laughs) That one, I feel like like a mix between like scientific and like a philosophical question. Um, I mean, it kind of makes me think of epigenetics which for those who don't know what epigenetics are, a very, very short version is basically how our grandparents and mothers and even great-great-parents treated themselves impacts us today. And I mean, so there's there's definitely truth to that. Like epigenetics has been studied and it's been proven like how our, you know, mothers and grandmothers like act during pregnancy impacts us or even before, right? Because our little eggs already there. And it kind of makes me think of that a little bit. I, you know, anyone in the fertility world, you know, that needs to go to IVF, I don't, I'm almost like careful to say like, yeah, it might cause this because, you know, 
this could be the only option that they have for a baby. And for me, I think I would say if you do all those natural things first and get your body in like the best place it can be, it will be a lot less likely that you have the negative effects from like an IVF procedure. Okay. Yeah. If you're taking care of your body in the first place. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love it. And I love it framed that way too. One of the things we we kind of touched upon that I want to dig into a little bit deeper here is um, egg quality, right? So honestly, I don't see egg quality come up in a lot of my clients, but I know that there's a lot of fear in getting that diagnosis of poor egg quality. In particular, I feel like extrapolated from an AMH value. So tell us a little bit more about AMH. Like what is it? How do you use AMH in your practice? And like, when should somebody be worrying about this um, if they aren't having a regular ovulatory cycle? Yeah. So you're right. A lot of people come into my practice really nervous about their AMH and like based off their AMH are told they like can't conceive, which like blows my mind because AMH is one part of the picture. You know, there's so many other things that like need to go right or go wrong, right? Like it's not just this one thing is like the end all be all. AMH is an estimate. And I like to emphasize that word estimate of our ovarian reserve, which just basically means how many healthy eggs we have left. Um, And like I said, it's an estimate. It is a hormone. So one, you know, different hormones, like like anything, it's not going to be the same every single time you draw it. Um, and two, it can also improve. And I know a lot of people don't believe that, but I kind of say like, okay, it's an estimate of ovarian, um, reserve, right? Ovarian reserve or egg quality. Basically people talk about, you know, you can't fix it, blah, 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 because it's dependent on age and genetics, which it is. Mm -hmm. You can't change your age, age or genetics, but just like some people age really well and some people don't depending on how you take care of yourself, it's going to be the same thing. Right. So if you take care of yourself and you're treating and you're reducing, you know, reactive oxygen species, lowering in overall inflammation, then our egg quality is going to be able to get better. It's going to be able to improve. So even if it's lower, I tell people like, don't worry, like well, we can work on this to improve things as well. And don't like focus, hyper-focus on that number because it's not the end all be all. I've seen people get pregnant with very, very low AMHs and they were like, there's no way. And I'm like, I promise you, like, it's not like, don't, put all of your eggs in. Oh God, that was so dorky. Don't put all your eggs in the eggs in one basket. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no. But I think that that's such a good message to hear because I do feel like there's so much emphasis in the fertility world on this AMH number. And it is like to, to drive that point home being an estimate, right? Like people get pregnant with low AMH. There are things you can do about it. And so what, like, I feel like there is this, and, and it's funny because we were t- chatting before we, before we started recording about this idea of an egg quality diet. And your answer like kind of makes me laugh because you were like, wait, what is an egg quality diet? <laughs> um, but I see this a lot, like all in the infertility space about how following a very strict anti-inflammatory, low sugar, low carb, like just, just very strict diet can improve egg quality. And I'm curious, like, is there more to the picture? Like, is it all about diet or is it more holistic? Yeah. I love that question. And yes, it was pretty funny. Uh, I was like, wait, what is, what is an egg quality diet? Um, and I like heard kind of heard it before, but I like, couldn't, I couldn't place it. Um, but 
like you said, it's totally holistic, right? I mean, I talk about the foundations for health all of the time. Sleep to me being like the number one, like the end all be all like sleep. I feel like everyone is sleep deprived. Um, and I shouldn't say everyone shouldn't generalize, but you know, many people are. And so like sleeps to me is going to beat an anti-inflammatory diet all day, every day. And so that's just something just right there. Um, I think like you said, diet, the 80, 20 rule is like my favorite rule. Um, also like during like really like fun, like crazy times, maybe 70, 30, like it's like, it's everything ebbs and flows just like life. And, you know, doing the best you can is important. Um, you know, you can still buy like the healthier brands of foods and, you know, eat things that you might think are like, quote, unquote, bad for you, but like, you're going to be okay. Our system's amazing and beautiful. And as long as we, you know, get our sleep and, you know, follow the 80-20 rule and, you know, move daily and, you know, take time to really nourish ourselves and reduce like overall stress in our life. Like those things are all, it's going to, it takes all of that, you know, and maybe that's a quality diet, right? <laughs> yeah. And I love to like, you know, 70, 30, 80, 20, like whatever, because I do feel like a lot of people that I work with are like 95, five or 90, 10. And they feel like that's optimal. And what I always tell people is like, at the end of the day, you could have the healthiest diet in the world, but if you're stressed and greeting ingredients list every single time you're making a food decision, if you are freaking out about what the food, what, what oil the food is prepared in when you're out for date night, and it's supposed to be a fun, intentional time with your partner, like that stress around the food is probably doing more damage than like the actual food itself. Um, and so it's a balance, right? Of like figuring out, you know, yes, we want to optimize our diet and make sure we're, we're feeding ourselves well. But this egg quality diet, like we don't have research to say like, you need to eat this way to improve your AMH per se, but there mm-hmm. are a lot of just general healthy lifestyle principles that we bring in when we're talking about improving egg quality. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. And I think we talked about it before too, but, you know, eating healthy fats, like lots of fruits and veggies, like that's, those are going to be things that yes, help. Right. But those also help like everything, (laughs) you know, like all our hormonal processes and, um, just overall inflammation. It's just going to help with so many different things. And that's why we eat them. It's not even just for like the egg quality. Yeah. And it's right. I feel like we overcomplicate it too, because it's like, for whatever reason, we want this specific egg quality diet, when in reality, some of us might already be doing a lot of things right when it comes to our nutrition, but there might be other, you know, things that are holding us back from getting pregnant. Not to mention that fertility and getting pregnant, it takes two people, right? And so male factor infertility can happen, but I feel like it's something that's really under talked about. I was interviewed for a podcast recently and kind of asked that question. And I was like, I think it's pretty high. Like, I think it's like one in five. And then I like looked it up later and I was like, oh, wow, it's like way higher than that. So talk to us about male factor infertility. How common is it? And why aren't we talking about this more often? Yeah, well, it's 50%, right? Like it's 50% of the time it's male factor. Um, And then I have couples where it's both, right? And then I have couples where, yes, it is female factor. But I think it's not talked about because again, this is also a generalization, but a lot of women are like the, let me research, let me figure out, like, I want to be like, go, 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 go. And like, get it done and figure it out. And like the male side is more like, sure, like whatever. And 
I think it's not for most of my couples, it's not because the male side doesn't care. It's just, I think the male system just seems so less complex that it's just like, no, it's simple. Like A plus B will C. So like the sperm should be fine. Yeah. Um, but sometimes it's not. And there's so many environmental toxins nowadays that, you know, that impacts way more than we ever really know or think about. Um, I feel like I talk about environmental toxins forever, but at the end of the day, it's kind of the same thing with like nutrition. It's like, you got to do the best that you can because right. there's no, there's so many around us that I don't want to like overwhelm any, everybody. But yeah, I think it's just because I think it's almost, like I said, it, the male system just is a little bit more simple um, in the sense of like the horm- the hormonal picture, right? It's a little bit like it needs to be, it's about, it's almost the same all the time. It does fluctuate a little bit. It really does. Like there's some, there's some bumps, but like, like when I'm talking about bumps, I'm like thinking of a graph <laughs> of the male hormones and like for females though, it's like up and down in our cycle. And there's a lot more that we can, you know, go off of like, oh, well it might be me because I have severe cramps in my cycle. Yeah. Right. Um, I don't want you to have severe cramps, but if, just because you have really bad cramps doesn't mean you're infertile or right. struggling with fertility, right? Um, and the the male's like, I'm fine. I'm kind of tired in the morning, but other than that, like I'm good. And it's really the male side in that time because their testosterone is low or whatever it is. Yeah. So. Yeah. You mentioned toxins and I love that approach too, because I do feel like it can be really, really overwhelming. What would be like a few, like maybe three, like best bang for your buck things that couples can do as they're trying to conceive as a couple, right? Because male and female, right? Like it's impacting both of us. What would be like some really good bang for your buck on ways to reduce toxin exposure? Yeah, I think the first thing would be like eliminating extras. So that means like dryer sheets, the Glade plugins, the toxic candles. There are other versions if you want to try, like there's some essential oils and there's some non-toxic candles out there. Um, but eliminating those extras are going to be important, like perfume, cologne, just like take them away. Yeah. Um, another one would be things that you use every day, swap out. So lotion, shampoo, conditioner, um, dishwasher soap, laundry detergent. Basically, if you're using it very often, not even, not even daily, but even like multiple times a week, then switch it out. Yeah. Uh, And then the last thing would be honestly, filter your water. These are the top three, by the way. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Filtering your water is going to be really important because there's like, most people do not have clean water in their tap. And so filtering your water out, is going to be really important. I kind of tell people any filter is better than no filter. Um, But if you can get one that at least takes like fluoride out, that's going to be ideal. Okay. Okay. Do you feel like toxins impact everyone? Because I'm thinking about like, so I only kind of recently went down that rabbit hole after we were done, like completing our family. Um, And so I was like, oh my gosh, like if I would have read this while we were trying to conceive, A, it would have stressed me out. But also I'm like, ooh, like we definitely did not have optimal fertility, but yet here we are with three kids. So do you feel like like some people can like fly under the radar? Does it a catch up with us eventually? Like what's what's the, why do some people seem to be more sensitive? Are, are certain people more sensitive to toxin exposure? Yeah, I think people are. I mean, it's just kind of like kind of like everything, right? Like some people have a lot of allergies and then some people don't. Some people have allergies because they have a gut issue. So some people all of a sudden you know, are suffering from something else. And all of a sudden they become more sensitive to environmental toxins Yeah, or you've been so submerged in toxins that you don't know what it's like to feel like without them. So the moment you start removing them, you start feeling better and then you add them back in. You're like, Whoa, 
Um, a big example of this for me is when I went to Bastyr. So my naturopathic medical school, we're actually like a fragrance free campus. And I was like, what is that? Like, I don't like change my shampoo and everything. This was like crazy. And I was like, okay. I like got back into the real world and I was like, what is this fragrance? Like these set smells and scents. Like I was sensitive yeah. to everything, which yeah. I wasn't before. So there's something to say about like definitely having like a balance. Like now I'm not like hypersensitive to everything anymore. Cause I like, I use shampoo and conditioner that are all very natural, but you know, they do have some like scents from essential oils or whatever. Yeah. And so like, I'm not going to get a headache from that anymore, but that's kind of a point that some people I feel like don't think about. It's like, you're submerged in it. You might not yeah. even that it's bothering you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and just recognizing that, you know, people who live in like, like more like urban environments, like there's going to be toxin exposure that like you literally can't control for. So like doing your best is really, really important. One of the things that I have come across more recently, or maybe just thought about more recently on the topic of male factor infertility is the idea that there's like a male version of hypotholemic amenorrhea. Well, so like amenorrhea, they don't have periods. So like, clearly that's not the actual name, but we talk about how over-exercise stress and under eating can really negatively impact female fertility. Do you see that in any of your male factor infertility patients? Yeah, a hundred percent. Um, I would say more on like the stress side for the males. Um, usually, and again, this isn't like knocking any of the males, but I don't see the overactivity. Like for males to be like overactive, they have to be like very overactive. Usually, like the lifting weights and things like that are going to be really helpful with testosterone levels. Like it has to be pretty intense. I, maybe like a if you're getting if they're getting ready for like a show or something, I wouldn't recommend that. You know, for fertility. But most of the guys like they they do really well with like movement. Um, but stress for sure. Um, the men with blue collar jobs, honestly, I see it be a little difficult. They're they're okay sometimes on like the testosterone side because they're like, you know, they're building things and around being a man. Yeah. But sometimes they're exposed to even more environmental toxins, you know, like my welders and my plumbers yeah. and all of that. Like that's, that's a little, that's a harder task for me. Cause I also can't be like, stop your job, right. but yes, I can see it on, I know what you're talking about. I can see that. I just think there's different contributing factors than like, nor, than like the female side. Yeah. Um, okay. I, yeah. I guess also though with the diet, like there are men who like don't eat enough and especially like protein. Like I'm like, come on, like let's, let's get this protein intake up. Yeah. Um, it's going to help so many different things. Um, so there is that too, but I think it's really the stress that like gets a lot of men stress and the environmental toxins. Okay. Okay. Good to know. When you see people, when you have couples come into your office with fertility issues and you suspect HA is going on, how do you address that with people? Like, do you feel like it's hard to get people to come around to the idea of needing to eat more exercise less? Like I feel from a lot of doctors that I visited with on this topic is like, they almost feel scared to go there sometimes with their patients. How do you approach it? Yeah. So I guess it really depends on the person. Um, some people I'm like, I can kind of make jokes with and we can be like, no, like let's like, let's increase this. And then some people I have to be like very, very slow with. And when I mean slow, I mean like, let's take this baby step by baby step. And so again, like obviously always case by case basis, but I think the major, I definitely always address it hundred percent. I think 
it can be something that can be nerve wracking to talk about. But if you kind of ask, like, if you try to get down to the root of why things are the way they are, like, why do you stress over this? Or, you know, why don't you eat as much as you do? Is it because of time? Is it because of stress? Are you worried about like gaining weight? Like, what is it? So kind of like not even just just addressing it, but figuring out like, why is it happening? Why is it that way? What causes the most amount of stress? Why aren't you eating enough throughout the day? And once I figured those things out, then I can make like a plan that is really going to help someone achieve the goals that we need to reach, right? Some people flat out be like, I hate cooking. (laughs) And I'm like, okay, like that's fine. So you're under eating literally because you just don't want to cook a food. And and I hear you on that. So then we're like, let's find you a, a good meal plan. Like go and get those meals where you can warm up. And people are like, well, that's not good. You're warming food up. And I'm like, but they're eating food. Like that's right. That's all that matters right. to me yes. at this moment. Yes. So it's like finding little things like that. Some people do get nervous about the about gaining weight. And sometimes I say you might gain weight. It depends on where they're at in their journey. Some some women that are most nervous about that, I find want to lose weight already. And they're like, and I'm like, well, you might lose it too. Like you never really know how your body's gonna respond, but you have to honor your metabolism. You have to honor like what your body needs to f- have fuel and to move forward. And so I know that was a really long answer, but ultimately it's like finding the why things are the way they are now and then treating it according to that. I love that. I love that because there's so many different reasons why someone might be under eating. It could be Mm -hmm. literally a practical issue. And I run across this in my practice as well. Somebody is a surgeon and they're in surgery for like eight hours straight. You can't eat when you're in surgery. So like, what do you do, right? Versus somebody who has a past history of an eating disorder. And so there's still all these lingering thoughts. And so that's when we have to start talking about how to support somebody on a higher level. And so yes, like looking at it, because there are so many different pathways that can lead to HA, that makes sense that we need to figure out like, why is this happening? And what's the best next step for those for those people? A big hesitation though that I do hear in a lot of HA clients, and I'm sure you've come across this too, is the fear of weight gain. And so can you talk a little bit about like how weight gain can actually be helpful for fertility? Oh, yeah. Well, first off, you know, people talk about women's body fat percentage versus like males. Like we're supposed to have a higher one for many reasons, but a big one is for hormonal balance, right? Um, you know, we need to have the right amount of like, like fat percentage. A lot of people will link actually estrogen to fat. Like, let's just kind of throw that together. And a lot of people hear about it, but there's some validity to that. I mean, not, I didn't, I didn't get very technical with it, but at the end of the day, like we can't produce enough estrogen, progesterone. We'll probably be good on the testosterone side if we're a little bit on the leaner side, but there's all these different hormones that are really important that just aren't going to get enough like nutrients or anything to be able to actually create a cycle. That's why when people get really, really lean, when I say people like women, when they get really lean, sometimes their cycles just like disappears because there's like, I just, I kind of explain it as there's just like not enough. There's, there's not enough for your body to do ever everything plus create a cycle. Mm-hmm. And your body is going to get rid of that first because that's not necessary for survival. Right. Does that make sense? Like your period, like it's supposed to come so you can like eventually create life. But if you're not, if you're not getting enough fuel yourself, it's like, oh, we're not going to bring that into the picture right now. Like right now we need to take care of you and we're not, we don't even have enough to sustain ourselves at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. And when people are afraid of gaining weight, like 
we talk about, well, like obviously it can, it, it can help with your hormone balance. It can bring your cycle back if you're not getting it at all. Are there any other like things that you try to share with your clients who are scared of the weight gain or hesitant towards it? Like just kind of like nuggets of wisdom on this is helpful for your body or for your future baby because. Yeah. Well, one kind of like I, I phrase it with like, you're going to give energy one to yourself, but also to future baby. So yeah. like when you eat, you're not eating just for yourself, you're eating for a baby. And then also, I again, this is diving into the why, like, why are you nervous to gain weight? Is it appearance related? Do you, do you look at that as unhealthy? And then talking about mindset shifts and thinking of like, you know, instead of looking at yourself, if you gain a little bit of weight and like, oh, I've gained a little weight being like, wow, I look really healthy. Like I look really good. And then also focusing on how, like the, how they feel. Right. So I'll be like, just see how you feel. Like you're going to eat a little bit more. If you're eating more and you're coming back to me and being like, I feel sluggish, I feel worse, like all these things, then maybe like, maybe like you were at your right size, but I, most patients that come to me and they start gaining a little weight, if that's a conversation that we've had, they're like, I feel amazing. I feel more awake. I feel more alert. I feel less anxious. Like it's still a mental like struggle sometimes to like get into that healthy, like my body's healthier space. But ultimately they feel so much better that a lot of times they start releasing, like, I don't really care almost as much because I feel so good. Yeah. Yeah. I I couldn't agree more. And it makes total sense when we think about things like on a physiological level, right? Well, like if your body is depleted of carbohydrates and nutrients and you start to replete those, your body's going to start working better. Digestion is going to improve and you're going to have more energy and physically feel better. So I, I agree. Sometimes it is just getting over that hump of allowing yourself to, you know, focus more on making nutrition a priority, actually eating. Um, so I think that that's so, so great. Like, I know that people need to hear that even if they've heard it a dozen times, I think that hearing it from you, um, is really helpful too. Let's wrap up by talking about preconception planning. So let's say someone's listening to this and they don't want to be pregnant right now, but like we're prepping, right? Like we're like, all right, like I'd love to be pregnant by the holidays or 2024 is our year. What are your like top recommendations for people as they're preparing to prepare to get pregnant? I love it. Preparing to prepare. That's so great. Um, Well, I mean, I usually give people like a timeline. Like if you're really working on preconception care, start at least like three to four months out. Um, But, you know, even if you... If you know now, like eventually you want to have a child, it's just easier to honestly start the healthy lifestyle habits like now, because then it's just going to take you really far. Um, and it's just good. to They're good habits to have anyway. Um, but they're the foundations of health are going to be what I talk about all the time. I repeat it. I feel like I sound like a broken record, but I think it's so important to emphasize. So, you know, the sleep, nutrition, movement, you know, stress management, and then like eliminating environmental toxins or reducing them. Those are going to be so important. Um, so really focusing on those. If, you know, you have a hard time going by yourself, this is where you find like one of us as a practitioner to help guide you. Um, but just like slowly starting with those, is going to be most important. Like I said, sleep's going to be like number one. So I'm always like, start with sleep. <laughs> well, spell it out for us because I think... I think that people underestimate what optimal sleep is because I'll get people who would be like, oh yeah, like I've gone from five to six and a half. Sometimes I get seven hours. What's optimal sleep? 
Got it. Um, well, optimal at the end of the day is when you wake up and you feel really rested. So there are some people that are definitely on that like edge where they only need like five to six hours. And like, I wake up and I feel great. I'm like, wow, I could get so much done if I was like you, <laughs> but I'm on the end that needs like eight to nine. So yeah. I'm on like the other end. Yeah. Most people are within the seven to eight hours. Yeah. Um, some people do like oversleep and they feel groggier too. So a lot of times I actually find people, I tell people to like find their sleep sweet spot. So yeah. sleep, like maybe if you feel like it's seven to eight hours, so sleep seven hours, sleep seven and a half hours, sleep eight hours, sleep eight and a half, and then see where you feel the best. You know, if you get a good night's sleep, obviously. Um, cause some people will be like, I get like eight and I feel great. And then I get like eight and a half and I feel terrible. I'm like, yeah. honestly, cause you're out of your sleep, your sleep sweet spot. Yeah. Yeah. So I really emphasize that. And obviously like just finding what's going to work best for you. A lot of times I talk about sleep hygiene habits. They're going to be really important. Even if you fall asleep easy, I, I tell people I like to emphasize that because your cortisol levels can still be messed up. Even if you just like fall asleep, if you're waking up in the middle of the night or, I mean, if you drink a lot of water at night, you're going to wake up to go to the restroom. Um, But other like it's going to be important. So I, for example, I'll put my phone in a completely different room. So I lay in bed with like out my phone in that room. I highly recommend that one for everyone. People get worried about an alarm. I'm like, you can get an old fashioned alarm clock or honestly just put your phone alarm on, turn it up. Then you have to get out of bed to turn it off anyway. So you're already up. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So that's going to be important. You know, drinking some tea, maybe doing some light stretching. Um, if you do have an issue falling asleep, I definitely recommend people like go to a practitioner and really get that figured out because insomnia is going, it's going to be, in my opinion, that can be a route to everything first, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, because it's so big. You can only clean your cerebral spinal fluid, which I basically say is like the gas that makes the car go right. Like at the end of the day, you can only clean that while you're sleeping. It's the only time. So if you're not sleeping, you're running off dirty gas or dirty cerebral spinal fluid. And how is anything supposed to function right after that? Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like I could talk about sleep forever and ever, but (laughs) I I think it's, I think it's like one of the most under-recognized lifestyle habits that has such a trickle down effect on, of course, our fertility, but our overall health too. And I think that that's a message that listeners need to hear too, because a lot of my HA clients are waking up at four or 5 a.m. to get that workout in because they're trying to be so healthy, but that might interfere with them getting their seven to eight. And so when we start talking about fertility, like it might be better to hit the snooze button or to really focus on your sleep quality over the workout. So I think that that's yeah, that's it too. Oh. I tell people do not wake up early to get that workout in. Like if you're like sacrificing sleep to get the workout in, the workout is not benefiting you. Right. It's not like, it's just not going to, um, also to the point of just cause you said snooze button, I know what the point you're making, but I actually am like a non, I'm a non snoozer. So I tell people like only set your alarm to when you need to get up and then get up at that time. Cause that helps you like your circadian rhythm. If you're like sneeze snoozing, that's like throwing it off. Um, that's so good. I think people need to hear that. I am actually not a snoozer. So I'm like, you're preaching to the choir over here. But I know that there are a lot of people who like snooze for like a half hour. Um, and yeah, that's a yeah. Good well, that, that, and that goes to another point of just putting your phone in the other room. So you have to yeah. get up to get it. Yeah. yeah, no, I think that these are all such such wonderful tips. Well, if somebody wants 
more info from you because I know that you share a lot on social and there's like, you're always like sharing new things, like so many different topics. Like what's the best way for someone to be engaged with you or maybe even take next steps and do you do virtual consults with people? Okay. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah. So I'm walk the natural path on Instagram. Honestly, I'm super active on there. So you always learn something new. I pretty much post every single day. Um, and then I'm very open in my DMS. I love when people message me. So if you have like any questions, I have people reach out. Obviously I can't give specific medical advice on there, but I do love when people reach out. And if I feel like I can also help with your case, I usually direct you towards my consultations. Um, or you can just book an appointment and, and all that info is on my Instagram. So it's probably the easiest place to go. I love it. Well, that's super helpful. And we'll link that in the show notes. So thanks so much for your time today and sharing some of your information and tips with us. And you guys be sure to reach out to Dr. B if you have more. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening. If you found this episode to be inspiring or helpful, please share on social media and tag me at food.freedom.fertility. Also, don't forget to leave a rating and a review.